Welcome to Paddling the Blue. With each episode, we talk with guests from the Great Lakes and around the globe who are doing cool things related to sea kayaking. I'm your host, my name is John Chase, and let's get started Paddling the Blue. Welcome to today's episode of Paddling the Blue. If you're a long-time listener, thank you. And if you're a new listener, thank you for finding us. I'm pleased to announce that we've just crossed through the 50,000 listens mark, and we're regularly heard in more than 70 countries. So all of you, thank you very much for making that happen. Uh, that's pretty exciting. So today I have the pleasure to talk with Louise 80. And Louise is going to take us to the bottom of the earth where she guided for 14 years in Antarctica. So I hope you enjoy some of her favorite stories from her years guiding Antarctica. Hi, Louise. Thanks for joining Paddling the Blue today. Hi, it's so nice to talk to you, John. Thanks Hi. for getting in touch with me. You're welcome. So, Louise, tell us a little bit about yourself as a paddler and how you ended up guiding Antarctica. Oh, boy, what fun. Well, let's see. Uh, I started out kayaking about 25 years ago. I bought a, uh, a used plastic boat from a demo person, uh, a guy who was a salesman for Perception Kayaks, actually. And uh, I was so enamored of it that within two years, I was planning a long distance paddling trip of six weeks to go all the way around Lake Ontario, living out of my kayak and camping out of the kayak, sleeping on beaches. And I just had this tremendous wanderlust. I just had to get out and do something. Uh, I was approaching 50. So I thought, well, for my 50th birthday, I think I have to do something really big. What's it going to be? And I came up with that. I considered a couple of different waterways, one the uh, Erie Canal, another one the Hudson River, but none of those appealed to me uh, because they seemed too small. I didn't want to get out on the ocean because I didn't have enough experience on the ocean. I needed something that was a bit more tame, shall we say. So so I chose, I thought about Lake Ontario because it, it's fairly close by. It seems like it's right in the backyard here. It's only a one hour and 15 minute drive due north from here to get to Fairhaven Beach State Park. And I thought, you know, if I have friends who want to join me, it seems like it's close enough that people could come and paddle with me for a couple of days if it worked out that way. So I set my sights on that and I started training for it. And I trained for, I actually planned for two years, but did the hardcore training for about two months. I had a, a team of coaches, uh, two women who were coaching me and I mostly wanted to do workouts leading up to the departure that would allow me to paddle at least, oh, 14 to 18 miles a day. As it turned out, I was paddling 17 to 22 miles a day after that first week, because basically all you're doing is paddling. So, so that was, you know, the training in itself was really fun. I was doing sprints and I had loaded my, I had methodically loaded the kayak up more and more full every week. So it was heavier and heavier until I got it to the point where I thought, this is probably about the weight I'm going to be pushing. And by then I had uh, finally gotten around to getting a proper sea kayak. I had driven to the east end of Long Island to a wonderful shop down there. I couldn't decide on anything online um, or over the phone. You know, now remember this was 22 years <laughs> ago. <laughs> so I, I thought, you know, I have to do this in person. So I found the biggest shop that I could find with kayaks that were seaworthy. So the closest thing that appealed to me was the shop at the east end of Long Island. And he had all seaworthy sea kayaks. He didn't have a single, you know, fluffy little playboat. Everything was just serious, get out in the ocean, whatever the conditions are, this is your sea kayak, make do. I ended up with the best possible boat I ever, ever could have imagined. And I chose it simply by the way it felt when I sat in it. That was the only criteria I had because he didn't have a demo. So, ah. I mean, I really did not do strange and it fit like a glove. Now I have to tell you, this boat was quite petite and um, I'm a small person, I'm five foot two. 
I weighed about 123 at the at, at that point. And um, I think that's why it felt so good. It felt so petite and, and agile uh, from what I could tell just by sitting in it. I mean, there is really the agility feel of a boat comes when you get in the water. So that wasn't even really a true test. So you're um, you're just sitting it in on the showroom floor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically. He's <laughs> rocking it back and forth forth and saying, This is what it's gonna feel like. And I and I'm like, okay, well, all right. I've been in my other kayak for two years. I guess I guess I can use my imagination. <laughs> so so I loaded the boat up and brought it home and I I didn't even have time to really research the boat at all. I didn't even really do that until I got back from the trip six weeks later. So I had two weeks to play with this boat before I actually loaded it up and got it out on the lake. When I took it up to Lake Ontario for my departure, it took me four hours to pack it because I had way too much gear, way too much of everything. So I had to jettison stuff. I'm just throwing stuff out left and right. And I finally got it whittled down to pretty much um, sleeping bag, tent, cook set, um, one change of clothing. So, I mean, it was still summer. It was the end of August. Uh, so I knew that I'd be in bathing suits quite a bit shorts you know i had to have a i had to have a, a warm sweater i had to have a little bit of rain gear um you know but i didn't have much i did promise myself that i would go out to dinner one night a week because it just seemed like i needed some sort of extravagance and so the criteria for that was that the dress would fit in a, a ziploc sandwich baggie <laughs> <laughs> so so it was this little sleeveless number that was made of, uh, I think it was Rayhan or something like that. And um, I still have that dress. It's still my favorite little summer dress. <laughs> so, so that worked well. The food was the big issue. How was I going to pack enough food for six weeks? So it occurred to me that what they do on the Appalachian Trail uh, is they package up their food. I think it's like one week increments or something and they send the food ahead mm -hmm. to a post office box and then they just pick it up. Well, I sent my food ahead to marinas. I got all kinds of information about the lake um, for mariners who are using power boats. That was very handy. So I was able to figure out where the marinas were and then I would just call them. And of course, I always ended up with a secretary on the phone and they would say oh yeah sure we'll be really glad to accept your box and then you just show up and pick it up when you get here and it was all very easy except for the one box that didn't make it so so I was out of food for the week little food item that I packed that I found I really detested so I took that little packet and just stuffed it up in the bow of the boat the bow of the boat, this particular boat, it was a Current Designs slipstream designed by Derek Hutchinson, a very famous boat builder in the North Sea of England. Um, so anyway, the, the bow of this boat is very, very narrow. It's very needle-like. And so I would just cram all that food up in there because I can't waste food and I, can't, I couldn't bear to throw away food. I mean, it was food, you know? So I ended up eat, eating that for a whole week and I really didn't like it, but I had it for lunch and dinner. So do you remember um, what that was? I, you know, I don't remember, but I do remember that I could follow it with M&Ms. So like I would take a mouthful of the detestable food and then I'd have a little bit of M&Ms to wash it down. And then I'd have another mouthful of food and some more M&Ms. Everything's better with vitamin M. <laughs> you know, it was. It was brilliant. It just worked out great. So um, one fun little item was I had called the, um, oh, what do you call it? The customs guy. I had called him ahead of time. I called the Coast Guard right at the border and said, what should I do about crossing into or going through customs? And he said, well, here's, you know, here's the phone number. Call this guy and get it set up ahead of time. So that's what I did. And he told me to come into this particular marina, look for the phone booth, give him a call. He'd come right down. So I got there. It was like one o'clock on a Sunday. And I called him and he's asking me all these questions. What's the name of your boat? What's the length of it? How many people in your boat? What's the, you know, and there's just one of me and it doesn't have a name. We have to have a name. 
okay, so I chose something silly. And then, and I said, so are you going to come down and clear me through customs? And he said, no, there's a hockey game on. (laughs) (laughs) Got to have your priorities. Exactly. True Canadian through and through. I thought that was just hilarious. So, um, so I did that trip. It did take the four week or the six weeks. Um, I probably could have done it faster, but um, I found that that time of year it was a stormy time of year, and I and and Lake Ontario, maybe the other Great Lakes too. I don't really know, but um, it's known for uh, its its three day blows. So you can get um, a windstorm with or without rain, with or without thunder and lightning, um, that can last for three days. You get these horrific blows where the waves get high, they get like six feet high, you know, and I found that with a fully loaded boat, I could handle four foot waves, but not six foot waves and certainly not 12 foot waves. Um, So I ended up being able to paddle only, I mean, these three day blows ended up coming through like once a week. So I found I could only paddle four days a week. Uh, So I was trying to get the most mileage out of each of those as possible. And I found that sitting in the boat for up to 22 to 25 miles, that was my limit. I just couldn't sit there any longer. I know that there are a lot of expedition kayakers who can go uh, much longer mileage. They can go 40 miles, 45, 48 miles even. But I just didn't have that in me for some reason. So, I mean, it was okay with me. I was not in a hurry. I did have some hair-raising experiences further along because it was getting later in the season. There was one moment where there was a hurricane watch that came across the lake. I was east of Toronto, probably... mm, maybe two or three days east of Toronto. And this hurricane watch came over from, it had passed over Rochester. And I didn't know it was coming, but I was paddling along and I noticed all of a sudden the wind picked up super ferociously behind me. And it was just, the waves were building like crazy. I couldn't figure out what was going on. It was just so out of character for the lake because usually those three-day blows, the wind would slowly, gradually build, you know, and you'd have some warning and you'd feel some atmospheric changes and it was all kind of predictable. But this one, this was just crazy. So I came around a point and I pulled into a bay and as I was pulling in, the wind was so strong, the waves were already up to four feet coming off the shore. So I punched my way through the waves, got to shore, clicked on my little shortwave radio, or can't remember exactly if that's what it was, some kind of a little radio device that I could listen into the weather. And I heard Hurricane Watch coming over from Rochester. So I paddled back out into the waves so I could get further and deeper into this bay. And I pulled up on shore um, and, and then I dragged my kayak up behind a cottage and I found an area that was sheltered and protected and I lashed both ends of the boat down to trees and then I set up my tent in the lee of this cottage and I stayed there for three days (laughs) while the thing just raged and the waves were 12 feet going past that point and and that, that point was like you know half a mile away from where I was I mean it was crazy um that was the only super bad weather. Well, hmm, not totally. There's one more story that, that was kind of the hair-raising story of the whole trip. And then I'll wind this up and tell you how I actually got to guide in Antarctica. <laughs> okay. And you're so doing most more... of this solo, right? Yeah, the whole thing solo. Okay. Yeah. So um, actually a friend, a guy friend did come and paddle with me for a couple of days. And that was really fun just to have somebody to talk to. Sure. Um, and I did pick up other paddlers along the way. I'd be out paddling and I'd see somebody up ahead who looked like they were, you know, just out kind of, you know, putzing around on on uh, the lake. And we'd start talking and they would paddle with me for an hour or two. Then they would paddle back again to where they came from. And that was just really pleasant too. Um, and then, of course, meeting people on the beaches, there were all kinds of people out walking their dogs and super friendly people who invited me up for tea and soup 
and to have a shower and, you know, all kinds of friendly, super sweet stuff like that. But this other time, um, I had gotten to a section of the lake where I was going to have to cross over, either, either go up into the uh, St. Lawrence, which I hadn't planned on at all, or cross over the lake to first Main Duck Island, which was 20 miles out in the middle of nowhere. And then after that, another 16 miles over to Galoo Island. And then after that, another 16 miles or so over to the shoreline of New York State. So I'd be back in New York again. Uh, so here I was, three good clean days of, you know, like 10 mile an hour winds, 12 mile an hour winds, nothing big, easy paddling. And I got to Main Duck Island and I set up my tent and I felt this very strange little wind rippling on my shoulder. And I turned on the radio and it said that the weather report had changed. There was now this big storm coming in. So I changed my uh, position because I was too exposed and I went a little further into a bay and it was beginning to be, it was pitch dark by the time I got to that little shoreline and I had a headlamp on and I saw two sets of eyes on shore. One was a big heavy lumbering creature that was fairly close to the ground and the other was a lightweight kind of uh, smaller sets of eyes up high and kind of jerking its head around. Later I found out that it was a beaver and a fox and they were both stranded on this island. They were living there. Hmm. So um, apparently according to the locals a few days later that whole section ice is over. So probably they came out across the ice and got stuck there but they were my only companions on that island. So I got stuck on that island for four days while the storm came in first from the west, then the northwest, then the north, then the northeast, and from the east. And by the time that it started hitting me from the northeast, the waves were so high that my tent, I had to keep moving my tent up the beach. Uh, it was a very narrow beach and it was the only beach on the whole island. Um, so I, I took my um, I took my kayak and put it behind a very th huge, large log that was partially submerged in the gravel. And I dug down and got ropes around the log, and then tied my canoe, my kayak to that. And then just below the storm was uh, really in its full fury. My tent was flattened out, and the water was actually washing right up to the door of my tent. Now, mind you, I was really totally isolated. I was 20 miles from the closest shore. I think I may have to call for a mayday. So this was back 22 years ago when cell phones weren't really terribly reliable. And I started to put the mayday call in and the phone went dead. Oh. So, <laughs> so I was really stuck on that island. And the freighters who were passing by, the Great Lakes freighters, um, they are on radar, so they don't see you if you're waving a, you know, great, a, a long kayak paddle with a white t-shirt tied to it. They don't <laughs> see you. And if they do, what are they going to do? What? You know, they're not yeah. going to come over to the island and give you a ride home, you know? So, I mean, that was kind of a, a, a partial hallucination or fantasy or something. It was just kind of desperation, I think. You know, but anyway, by noon that fourth day, uh, the lake calmed down, the sun came out, the wind was gone. It was a gorgeous day, and I took off and I got over to Galoo, got out and had lunch, and paddled another 16 miles and got to the New York shoreline. So that was my longest paddle day. That was huh. uh, like 36 miles that day. So, um, so prior to this, um, this six week journey, did you already have extensive camping and solo travel experience? Yeah, I had done a bunch of shakedown cruises, and I I had done some backpacking in other years. Uh, and in subsequent years, I did some winter ski uh, ca uh, camping. Okay. So I've always been kind of, you know, um, savvy, I guess, yeah. like camping savvy. So this yeah. wasn't, so that part wasn't new to you. It was just the, the method of travel that was a... Yeah. Different. So. Yeah, exactly. So and, when, you, and, when you hatched the plan uh, to go on a six-week solo, 
What did your friends and family think? Oh, they just thought, you know, oh, she's going off on another one of her adventures. Great. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my parents were nervous. I like to say we were raised as feral children <laughs> because we could just ram around in the woods barefoot, you know, and without answering to anybody. And just as long as we were home for supper, you know, I mean, we had that kind of childhood. Good. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was healthy. <laughs> I think uh, I think a lot of kids uh, probably need a dose of that today. I was thrilled when my granddaughter announced that she was going to do a month with Knowles National yeah. Outdoor Leadership School out in Wyoming, and that was between her junior and senior year in high school. And because it's a leadership program, you know the kids come back with with so much confidence. And I know other people who have gone through that program. It's just fantastic. Yeah. So anyway, so I guess like getting getting back to your first question about how did I become a kayak guide in Antarctica? My sister was already, let's see, at that point, she was already probably 10, 15 years into being an expedition leader with an ecotourism company in Antarctica. What they did was they realized that there were uh, there were all these Russian boats, uh, ships, small ships, that were in a mothball. They were in mothballs because the Cold War was over and could move around the Arctic and they could, during the Cold War, I guess that's what they did. So they they chartered these uh, Russian ice strengthened boats and they put 50 passengers on each of them. And then they had naturalists and they had all sorts of programs for enlightening people about the plight of Antarctica. Uh, with global warming and with our responsibility for maintaining the pristine quality of some of these places that have been virtually undiscovered and so far unexploited. So she got in on that very, very early and she had a really, a very illustrious career that ended up being almost 40 years. But at one point with her company, there was some discussion about putting kayaking on as an extra activity for the guests. And I can remember her telling me, yeah, we discussed kayaking, but we've decided that it's probably not a good idea because of the liability. So this was in, I'm trying to think, this was in February of the year we were having this conversation. In June, she called me and said, guess what? We've put kayaking on and we're gonna need guides. So are you interested in guiding? And I said, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Are you kidding? Yeah. She had, meanwhile, taken me as a guest on one of her ships to Antarctica that very year before. So it was 18 years ago I went down there for my first time. And then it was 17 years ago that I went down as a kayak guide. And I got my orientation for one trip, one 10-day trip, from a, a wonderful woman named Haley Shepard. And she's still guiding in Antarctica. She gave me my orientation, then she went home. So I was on my own from then on. And I was a solo kayak guide with usually 12 paddlers. But we always have in Antarctica for all of the kayaking, all the companies across the board all have a safety zodiac following behind them in case there's any kind of a mishap. And that mishap would be a beginner having a capsize because we have we take so many beginners out and you know they don't have experience sure. they haven't been they haven't spent time in the pool learning how to roll and we can't require that of them because then we would probably not get enough paddlers and kayaking is is one of those things where if conditions are calm pretty much anybody can do it but if conditions get dicey and things change rapidly. You've got people in cold water. It's 29 degrees, actually. And because the water is so highly salinated, it doesn't freeze until about 29 or 28 point something. So meanwhile, you've got people in the water and you have to get them out and get them back to the ship. So we always had a safety zodiac with us and that was really great. So the guiding there for me was really super simple. I didn't, ha I didn't take them out in dicey conditions. Over a long period of time, I kind of came to an understanding that 12 knots of wind 
was probably the cutoff point. But that depended a lot. And you don't have weather reports on the ships in Antarctica. You've got grib reports, and the grib reports give you the wind, but they don't spell out. They don't, sh they don't really display much information in the inland waterways where we spent all of our cruising time and time on shore. So you just kind of have to develop a sense, which I did over time. And the first year I felt really insecure about that. But after that first season, when I had three trips and I had spent a month kayak guiding, I started developing a feel for the currents. You know, I just started, it, it just kind of, you, I, I don't know how to explain it, you just develop a sense for it. And that's what I did. But most of the time we were just having fun. You know, I, I was just um, always, I always like to guide from behind because I like to watch, I like to watch my kayakers in action. I want to see how comfortable they are in the water doing what they're doing. If they're not comfortable, I can come up beside them. We can chat, we can visit, we can talk about a few things. If they, if they do look nervous, you know, and then from there, we just really kind of relax into a nice flow and I find also that when I'm leading, I tend to go a little faster than what they would like to go. So I end up way out in front. So I'll just kind of pick a point and say, okay, you guys kind of like being out in front here a little bit. How about if we head over toward that point over there or that set of rocks over there? And we'll just kind of follow along behind. And then if I needed to get their attention or slow us down for some reason, or have a stop for a rest, I could just sprint up there and chat with them. So what would a typical trip look like? Do you mean an outing from the ship with yeah. The kayaks? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it takes some preparation. In the Drake Passage, we've got two days of transit from the southern tip of South America until we get to the outer archipelago of islands that's off the Antarctic Peninsula. And we might do some kayaking there, but maybe not. But anyway, in the Drake Passage, I would give them a one-hour lecture each of the two days. The first would be about the orientation of the program, what it was like, what to expect, what we expect of you, what we would like you not to do, um, how to react around the wildlife, how far away to stay from the wildlife, how far away to stay from glaciers and icebergs, and the dangers if we don't, and all of that stuff. And then the second day, then I would hand out the gear. We would fit them to dry suits and PFDs and booties and get them all set up with their gear. And then uh, any further questions. Uh, sometimes we would go up on the deck and look at the kayaks. If it was calm enough, I could show them how we adjust the foot pegs so that when it came time to jump in the kayaks on the first day of actually leaving the ship, then they would feel a little bit more comfortable with the boats and kind of what was expected of them. So the typical day would go like this. The night before, we would make an announcement in the evening about the possibility of kayaking the next day. And then if there is kayaking, I would ask that the kayakers be the first ones in line for breakfast because we need you to eat and get out of there so you can get into your gear, get up on deck and get ready so that we can try to be the first ones off the ship. It may not work out, but we have to stand by and be ready. Please don't drink coffee because that's going to make you go to the bathroom. We don't get to go to the bathroom when we're kayaking in Antarctica. <laughs> You're sitting in a kayak. You don't get to go to shore. If you do go to shore, you certainly don't get to use it as a latrine. And um, so that was, you know, we had all kinds of little orientations like that. So then we would, I would have all the kayakers get into a Zodiac and they'd be out in the water. And before that, the sailors and I up on the deck would be lowering the kayaks to the water with a crane and then hooking them up to the back of a second Zodiac. And then the Zodiacs with the kayaks would meet up with the Zodiacs with the people. And then we'd bring the Zodiac, we'd bring the kayaks alongside the Zodiacs and then the people, the paddlers could jump into the kayaks and then off we would go. So we would paddle for say two or three hours. And we were, we almost always would see penguins because the nature of our stops is that it was all based on the location of penguin colonies. And that would give the passengers who were not kayaking a chance to get on shore and do some walking around. 
looking at the penguin colonies, hiking up higher for some really incredible views, you know, just generally stretching their legs, but also learning about the penguins, the various penguins that we would see. So that meant that, of course, so we would see penguins out in the water. We'd see rafts of them, you know, flocks of them swimming. They'd come toward us and then they would duck under. The I think the highlight for everybody was seeing, we would see seals. Crab eater seals were sometimes curious and would come over. Leopard seals were curious and would come over to look at us. But the best part of all was when the humpback whales would come over and check us out. That was the highlight of that was the highlight of guiding for me was having such close encounters with humpback whales. They were feeding voraciously for weeks and weeks. So that by well, our season down there for uh, ecotourism starts in mid-November and it ends in mid-March. So usually by early February to mid-February, the whales were so well-fed. They were just fat and lazy, and they didn't really, they weren't ready to make that trip all the way back up to the equator just yet. They needed to relax and let that food settle and let the fat build up. And, you know, they were bloated. I mean, you could tell, you know, you could tell a mile away if you saw a humpback whale just sounding, which means that they just show their back. It, it doesn't... Um, a lot of people think of it as breaching. Breaching is when the whale launches its entire body out of the water, mm-hmm. you know, and then lands on its side or its back. But sounding is when they just come up for air, blow, and then you see the dorsal fin, and then they go back down again. Well, when a whale is, when a humpback whale is super well fed, there's an enormous glob of fat in front of the dorsal fin. And then underneath the dorsal fin, so the dorsal fin is lifted up. It's very, very high. It's very pronounced. When they first arrive, that dorsal fin just, it's not sunken, but it's very small and very compact and very close to the back. But so later in the season, when they're really fat and well-fed, that's when they're the most engaging. So they'll come over. I mean, the closest I ever had a humpback whale to me was an experience I'll never, ever forget. I didn't breathe. I didn't blink. We were just sitting there. We had three humpback whales circling us and going underneath us very, very slowly, just in a very comfortable, relaxed way. One of them was a little ways off, and it was laying on its side with its pectoral fin up in the air, kind of waving back and forth, and then pectoral. And these pectoral fins are, you know, up to 18 feet long which is, you know, the length of our kayaks. Mm. So I was just sitting there and I noticed this white in the water right immediately next to me. And I looked down and it's the belly of a whale. The whale is upside down. It has come from behind. Its pectoral fins are straight out and it's right under the side of my kayak. And the belly of the whale is an inch under the water. I could have scritched its belly. Wow. It was that close. <laughs> and and I mean that's an experience. That's a lifetime experience. You get that once in a lifetime. You know, and then and you don't forget it. It's very <laughs> spiritual. So it sounds like your favorite part of guiding Antarctica then was the wildlife encounters? Absolutely. Absolutely. When I wasn't kayak guiding and when I was on the ship and on deck, I had I have to say that my most favorite part there was being able to see like 150 miles because the air is so clear and it's so cold and all you can see are mountains covered with glaciers just as far as the eye can see. So it's predominantly, it's like a 99.9% white landscape. And the light that bounces off those glaciers is just phenomenal. I mean, I would go out on deck many times in the afternoon or evening if something wasn't happening you know i would just go out and just breathe and take in all that pure pure air because i knew there was no other place on earth where i would have that experience and um i just felt like i could just open up my pores and take that in and then uh, if i happened to be lucky enough to be up super early in the morning when the sun was coming back over the peaks there would be that split second moment 
when the sun would just clear the peak and throw that light across across you know a hundred miles of you know part below that it would be dark still but above would be the light and there's no other place on earth where you really get to see something that magnificent something so ethereal and unreal and no matter how many times you go it's stunning it's amazing it's um it, it, it pierces your soul and there's just no words for it i had uh 55 trips to antarctica and well over 200 kayak outings i took 1400 people kayaking in 14 years and i could never get enough of it <laughs> i just wanted to keep doing it forever did you already have a uh, a naturalist background or how did you develop your your knowledge of the wildlife and the landscape boy i'll tell you you absorb that immediately because you're on board you're on you're on a team you're on a naturalist team with people who specialize who are ornithologists marine biologists glaciologists geologists you name it, anything that applies to what's going on down there. Oh, and the historians as well, who all give lectures on board the ship on the Drake Passage on the way down. So you have a full slate of lectures. You've got pretty much four lectures per day. It averages out to about seven lectures on the way down. And then you've got some mini lectures in the evening during the kind of happy hour before supper. And you've got these like 15 minute little brief lectures that the uh, that the lecturers, the naturalist lecturers will do. I mean, I think by the end of that first season, I had absorbed, I was like a sponge. You know, I couldn't get enough of that, that natural world. So I learned a lot. And when I went home, I read as much as I possibly could. I just needed to know more and more and more. So about three years later, they stopped hiring the uh, historian specialists, the historians. And I think it's because they tended to be older gentlemen and they didn't drive Zodiacs. And you have to be multitasking. You have to be a multitasking person down there. You've got to be able to drive Zodiacs. You've got to be able to handle emergency situations. It helps to be trained in crevasse rescue. So I was given an opportunity that I wasn't expecting at all. Um, the first time that we showed up on the ship and it was announced that our company was no longer hiring historians, our expedition leader said, okay, to the team, said, okay, who would like to do the Shackleton lecture? And everybody looked at their feet. <laughs> I mean, who, you know, an ornithologist, what does, you know, what do they know about the Shackleton adventure, you know, the expedition? Yeah. So I thought here's my chance. I can become a lecturer and I can have a little credibility. So, so I took that role on. I said, okay, I'll do it. And I had no clue what I was doing. <laughs> but fortunately, there's, there are good libraries on all these boats, all these ships. And so I just read everything I could. I uh, scanned as many photos from the books as I could. And I used those in my lecture. So the next year when I came back, I had something like I don't know, 80 slides ready. I had my lecture completely laid out and I started adding more and more and more of the early Antarctic explorers so that I finally had a full slate and I could put this on my resume. You know, I had about eight different explorers that I could lecture about. So that made me valuable because I could drive a Zodiac, you know, I could take people out kayaking and I could lecture. And I had crevasse rescue training you know, so I was, um, you have to do that. You have to make yourself as available as possible and as uh, valuable as possible. So what qualifications does one need and how do you obtain those, both regulatory and paddling? To be a kayak guide? Sure. Um, you know, it's all very hazy. I have to say that just about all the kayak guides that have been hired since I was hired, and that was 20 years ago now, 19 years ago, they're all young. They're all in their 30s and 40s, it seems. So I'm guessing that a lot of those people have gone through programs like Knowles and Outward Bound, and they have become uh, guides in that way. And I think that a number of them have been whitewater guides professionally in the summertime. 
you know, at home in North America. So I think that they had a totally different background than I did. And it's probably a more consistent background. Okay. Um, and, and as a whitewater kayak guide, you know, you are, of course, highly trained in rescue situations. You've got to be able to rescue people when they go into a hole, you know, uh, or a hydraulic, you know, and, and these are real life and death situations. I didn't have that training. So I was really lucky to get the job I did. I do think that the whitewater uh, guides are probably the most qualified to do this job. And it just helps to have other experiences too. But, you know, at this point, uh, just in the last, oh, probably three years, and I left four years ago. So I think pretty much just in the last three years, there, uh, there, there's someone who started up a professional Antarctic kayak guide program. And I'm not sure what he calls it, it's but- Graham Charles. That's it. Yes. He yeah, you've a... spoken to Graham. I have, yes. Yep, uh-huh. yep. And I worked with him too. Yes, Graham started that up after he had done his trip with two buddies uh, all the way down the Antarctic Peninsula. Yes. And, and then he became an expedition leader. And that's when I worked with him. And then he came up with this professional guide service specifically for Antarctica. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think anybody who wants to do this, has, you really have to go to Graham Charles and his uh, organization. Go from there. Absolutely. Over your 14 years of experience guiding in Antarctica, how did the experience change during that time? I think the focus shifted a little from... Uh, we tended, when I started, we tended to have an older clientele. And I don't think it was just because of economic advantage. I think it was because they understood the need for for protecting Antarctica. And I think that the organization called IATO, I-A-A-T-O, which is the International Association of Antarctic Tour Operators, which my sister helped start, by the way, way back when, that pretty much governs all of the protocol and policy for how to act and behave and protect Antarctica once you go home. That has, is, is still a very, very strong governing body. And it's not governing in, in the way that it's mandatory. This is a volunteer, uh, it's voluntary participation. So each company is encouraged to participate, and most of them do. Uh, Some of them feel that they're kind of above it, that they do better than IATO, but I'm not so sure about that. IATO is like the gold standard, as far as I'm concerned. But how it changed, I think, is that at some point, it became glamorous to go to Antarctica. And so now this became a big thing on people's bucket lists, like, to say that you've gone to Antarctica, it's the final frontier, it's the most inaccessible place, it's uh, remote, hard to get to, and very, very expensive. So we've seen the age of the clientele dropping over the years, and I'm not sure, I don't know if that's good or bad. I really don't know. I know that there are a lot of tourists that come from other countries, China in particular, it's like the in vogue thing to do. It's like all the rage to go to Antarctica. And they don't really do their homework before they get there. I don't think that they have as much exposure to the natural world as people from other countries, like European countries, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the U.S., and so we see kind of a cultural difference that's it's tricky keeping you know keeping them away from the wildlife for instance it's really incumbent on us as the nature guides to stress and enforce all of our distance rules so that we don't impose on the wildlife we really don't want to leave a trace and we don't want to impose on the wildlife it's, it's their territory. We're just the guests. Yeah. So we have to work really hard to uh, maintain that. And, and it's become harder, I think, each year to do that. 
<laughs> if you think about uh, when you started guiding there, what, what do you feel you were least prepared for when starting guiding? <laughs> I could talk all night about that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a long list of things I was not prepared for. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, well, I wasn't prepared for shipboard life, you know, living on a ship. You learn very quickly that the captain is God and you treat him with him or her mm-hmm. with all kinds of respect, all due respect. You, the officers as well, and they all have their role and they all have very, very precise jobs to do. So you wouldn't ask something of the wrong person. You have to know the right person to go to. And with the kayaking, every single ship handles the kayak program differently. The way the kayaks are stored, the location of the storage, the way they get them off the ship, the people who are involved in getting them off the ship, the order with which they come off the ship. You know, is it before the passengers? Is it after? If Is it during? And if it's during, how, you know, how difficult is that? And it's usually very difficult. You know, all that, all that sort of stuff, getting to meals on time. If you don't go for the meal during the seating, you don't eat. And plenty of times back in the early days on the smaller ships that only had 50 passengers and seven naturalist staff, oh, there wasn't room for you in the dining room. The ship was so small. So you had to eat with the crew, which was really fun because then you get to know the crew. And and they're wonderful people, you know, especially the hotel staff. They're mostly Filipino. And they're so delightful and so happy and helping and 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 just they just want to be your friend. Um, so you make you know I made many many lifelong friendships with people. I'm still friends with people that I worked with up to 20, 19, 20 years ago. You know that whole hierarchy and how that works. I wasn't prepared for how cold that water actually is. <laughs> Although, you know, I've been a cross-country skier most of my life, and I have I was a ski racer for almost 30 years before I went to Antarctica. So being out in the cold is, is nothing for me. But just um, having the right clothing, and it took me probably five years, five seasons, rather, to get to the point where I felt like I had exactly the right type of hat for what I was doing. I was very lucky that I had the perfect dry suit right off the bat. I got a Kokotat Gore-Tex dry suit for that first season. And boy, I never, I never faltered. I never went any other direction but Kokotat <laughs> Gore-Tex dry suit. One size too big so I could put layers, multiple layers underneath. And I had, it took a long time to get the perfect hand gear for kayaking in Antarctica because all of the manufacturers in the U.S. will tell you, oh, you got to have neoprene. Um, In fact, NRS gave me seven pair of neoprene prototypes for me to assess. They didn't want feedback in terms of, oh, I like these, I didn't like these. They wanted me to give them specifics on, like technical specifics on what exactly needed to be improved in the manufacturer of these gloves. And I have to say, look, you guys, I'm really sorry, but not a single one of these is cutting the mustard for me. I had to go with Gore-Tex snowboarder gloves that were Thinsulate lined. I had to get men's size large so I could put one to two pair of smart wool liners inside. And I still had, I had to make sure that they had pockets on the back so I could put little heat packs, the hot pocket things inside in case we had in case it was windy or raining or something like that because my hands just got worse and worse over time. So you mentioned uh, the boats. You mentioned that earlier, and you mentioned that they were kind of Cold War boats. Did those boats feel like a, a kind of a post Cold War environment, or were they retrofit boats? They were retrofit. There was carpeting. The bunks were all metal, and the walls were all metal, of course. But there were. You know, there were wooden embellishments in the dining room that made it seem cozier, warmer, more friendly and welcoming. The bridge, that's the operation heart of the Mm -hmm. ship, the operation center. That was wood paneled, you know, and very attractive. I think most bridges are probably like that, at least all the ones I've seen. 
But yeah, wooden railings, you know, they tried to put wood in as much as possible just to make it attractive. But you know, all the boats that came after those Cold War boats were um, much more attractive. They were really set up for, for guests. But I have to tell you, um, before I started doing this, um, my sister had been at it for 20 years already. She is really truly a legend in this industry. She is known far and wide by so many people because she really set the standard for how to treat our guests and what to give them and how to enrich their experience. I mean, she was dedicated to this her whole career, her whole life. She she even named, they even named a cove after her in Antarctica. There's an 80 cove named after my sister. Uh, give me your question again, because I got off on a tangent. I was just asking about the the boats, and did they feel initially like Cold War boats, and how have those uh, boats changed over the years? Right. Okay, so let me go back to when my sister first started doing this. She quickly moved up to a very large, uh, the company that we both worked with, Quark, and the one she started out with, they, over, I don't know how, maybe 10 years into it, something like that, they decided to charter an icebreaker. And this was one of a small fleet of maybe three or four icebreakers at the time, maybe two. I'm not real sure about that, but they had basically to, in order to get passengers on that boat and to retrofit it for for ecotourism, they basically it looked as though they built this big square hotel with windows and rooms and then just kind of lifted it by a crane and set it down on the, the decks of this icebreaker ship. So if you were to go look up a ship called the Kapitän Klebnikov, that's capital, that's Kapitän with a K, Klebnikov with a K. And then there's another one called the Yamal, Y-A-M-A-L. And there are a couple of other ones too. But if you were to look those up, you would see that there's this great big giant box looking thing. It's actually the hotel part of the ship where all of the passengers reside. So that was back in the early days. But now all of the ships that they're building, they're, some of them are have very eccentric shapes. Um, the ones that just came out in the last two years, National Geographic has one that's really strange, strange looking boat, but it's the hull is so well designed that it's very comfortable in the Drake Passage. You still roll, but not like we used to. In those Cold War ships, we would roll up to just about 45 degrees. Wow. I mean, just, just shy of 45 degrees. And that was fierce fun to be up in the bridge and hanging <laughs> on for your dear life, watching that needle go right up, like easing its way up to 45, like, woo, we almost made it. You know, and we're talking 20 and 30 and 40 foot seas at times. You know, 20 and 30 is the norm for a big sea. On very, very rare occasions, would you get a 40-foot wave, but, you know, almost never. But a 20, 30-foot wave, like, that's that's almost maximum. And, um, you know, the, the ship does a lot of moving when it's like that. You know, it goes up and slams down, and then the spray comes all the way over the top of the ship. But the ships now are built, um, they just look different. They have different designs. They're, they're smoother in the Drake Passage. You know, you still have people with seasickness problems and that kind of thing, which, by the way, I could put a plug in at this moment for really doing your homework. If you just, if, if, if any of the listeners decide, you know, that they want to do an Antarctica trip, first thing you need to know is that it's almost always the Americans who get seasick, really? not the Europeans. Um, and it's because, and Canadians too, they're, you know, pretty, I don't know, sea savvy. I think it's because they have a history as being seafaring nations. It's just kind of generally accepted that when you go out to sea, it's rough. But so what? It's rough. You adapt. Whereas in the U.S., we psych ourselves out. We are so, we are such professionals at psyching ourselves out for seasickness. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I mean, seasick. I thought, no, it's not. I'm going to watch this, you know, and sure enough, 
it's like, no, the Europeans don't and the English don't and the Irish and the, you know, the Germans, because they all know that when you go to sea, it's rough, but you adapt. You have to allow that adaptation to enter. You have to let that in. I, I got seasick my first time down there as a guest. And when I got home, I thought, well, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm going to try to figure out. I've got to outsmart this thing. And I did. I found that acupuncture works. So I went to my acupuncturist for two or three treatments leading up to departure time. And he gave me travel needles, which I could insert myself. And they're very, very tiny. They're super short. They're like, I don't know, like a 16th of an inch or less. And they just barely go into the skin. So there are six points on your body where you can put these in and you do it the day before. You also take candied ginger and you chew on that. And if you feel this slight, then just go and lie down for half an hour, close your eyes and you're better. You're all done. The reason we know that this is a psych out is because once people get their sea legs, when they've been on the tr on the ship for six, seven, eight days, and we get back in the Drake Passage to go two days back to South America, nobody gets seasick anymore. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned capsizes earlier. How often mm -hmm. do they happen? Not very often, uh, for me anyway, and I can't speak for any of the other guides, but I, over a period of time, I discovered one spot where I seem to be having more capsizes than anywhere else. I had six capsizes in this one area, and I finally realized what was going on. Conditions would, it would be like perfect storm conditions. There's this one huge island that's, well, I can't call it huge. It's, it's very, very tall, and the channel on one side of it, one channel is very deep, and one is quite shallow. And the, when the tide is going out, the water is creating a current coming down both sides of this island. This island is kind of cigar-shaped. So it would be coming down and actually crossing at the southern tip of this island. And then if you have wind, like, you know, coming in off the Drake Passage, coming over these low islands, you would have the wind come in. And all of a sudden, you'd come around this point you know, and you'd be paddling and everything seemed a little strange. And then all of a sudden, like somebody's capsizing and then another person's capsizing. I'm like, whoa, whoa, let's get out of here. And I didn't put two and two together for the longest time because nothing on the surface shows. There's no indicator on the surface. So I didn't really get that we were in some kind of a Bermuda Triangle after until after you know, I would have like one or two capsizes. We'd get them back to the ship with the Zodiac. And then some of us would go back out again and kayak, but some people would get wigged out and say, oh, I don't know. I, you know, I don't want to capsize. Um, so I would take a few more people. We'd go back out again and we wouldn't go to that spot. But then I went over that spot many, many, many times when that wasn't happening. Uh, we don't have tide charts for there. So I didn't really have any way of reading that area, but I just knew that if I had little wind coming off the Drake Passage, I just was not going to go back there. <laughs> so, you know, the capsizes, I mean, I have one of them on video, actually. Somebody just happened to have their GoPro going and said, okay, everybody just stand back, stand back, let Louise do her thing, you know? And we had the Zodiac come in and the guy, you know, came up laughing because he felt foolish. And he was, you know, a college age person or in his thirties maybe. And he was, he was fine. I mean, he was cold and wet, of course. And the dry suits will prevent you from getting soaked to the bone. Mm -hmm. That's the job. Of course, you don't want to be in that water for very long. So I think we had him, I think he was in the water for like three minutes or something. You know, I, two, two and a half minutes. We timed it on the video because, you know, the person who capsizes will always tell you they were in the water for a good 10 minutes before anybody got them out. <laughs> and that's just not so. <laughs> it may feel like it. And I get that. But yeah, I'm, you know, I mean, things happen. But that's why we have the safety zodiacs with us at all times. And usually, you know, I mean, if things look a little tiny bit dicey, people probably don't want to go out. 
And we've got stop gaps. We've got safety built into everything we do. And I have to say that every year, every season that I went down there, I built more safety standards into my operation. Every, every time we got there, I had, you know, I had the whole season away from the ship and away from Antarctica to think about how I could do things better. And every year I came up with more stuff, but we still had a wonderful time. One of the things I really love to do with people, after I got them kayaking for two or three times and they started feeling really comfortable with it and they felt like they weren't going to die, they weren't going to capsize, that, hey, this is pretty good, you know. Louise tends to pick quiet, calm bays, calm places where we can feel comfortable, that kind of thing. I would have them, I would tell them we're going to do a little moment of silence kind of thing, because we always traveled in a group, you know, when you're in a group, people talk, and there's kind of visiting and stuff going on, and that's fun. But I would have them come in together and we would form kind of a star formation with our kayaks. And then I'd say, okay, I'd like everybody to just paddle off in a different direction, like the spokes of a wheel, and just paddle out for like a minute or so and just come to a place where you can stop and where you don't see or hear the ship. I would always pick a place where you could not hear the ship or see it. So we'd be around the corner from a ship. So I'd say, okay, just make sure that you you know, you can't see the ship and you place. So I want you to go all the way out there and I want you to stop. I want you to move around in your boat, make a little bit of noise, get your paddle resting over your lap, sit as quietly as you possibly can, get comfortable. And you're going to stay there for about 10 minutes or so. And what's going to happen is not only will your vision reach out as far as it possibly can and take in every nuance every every mountain peak every glacier between you and the end of vision but you're hearing you're going to hear stuff that you didn't know was out there you're going to hear ice crackling you're going to hear you know when the ice melts it pops because it releases air you're going to hear waves lapping against an iceberg you're going to hear penguins off in the distance so i want you to just take that time and really absorb this place because you will never be in a place that's as quiet and real and raw as this ever again. And they would just get the magic of that. They got it. They would go out and then when it was time to bring them back in, they didn't want to come back in. So I would just go out and quietly like, how are you doing? You know, talking to them, get them all rounded up. And and I'll tell you what, those questionnaires at the end of the trip, every single person always said the kayaking was the highlight of their trip. Well, Louise, thank you for bringing that little bit of magic to us. And it's been uh, a lot of fun listening to you and learning about your experiences guiding in Antarctica and, and the, uh, the experience that you brought to all your guests as well. Thank you, John. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah. How can listeners reach you if, you, if they've got additional questions for you? Well, you know, I think the best thing to do is to just email me. I don't mind that at all. It's it's uh, Vesla, which is my Norwegian nickname. It means little one. Um, so it's Vesla, V as in victory, E, S as in Sam, L-A, the number two, at AOL.com. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Sure. And, uh, we'll, we'll add that to the show notes. And then any other resources, I'll connect with you offline. And then any other resources that you might have that guests might find uh, might find helpful, we'll include sure. that in there as well. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much. I yeah. love this program. I think that you do a terrific job, John, and you have such a, a wonderful way about you and you have such a great voice. Well, thank you're, you. You're really good at this. I appreciate that. So again, thank you very much, Louise. I appreciate you spending time with me today. My pleasure, John. Thank you so much for getting in touch with me. It's been so much fun. If you want to be a stronger and more efficient paddler, Power to the Paddle is packed with fitness guidance and complete descriptions, along with photos of more than 50 exercises to improve your abilities and enjoy your time on the water. The concept and exercises in this book have helped me become a better paddler, and they can make a difference for you too. The exercises in the book can help you reduce tension in your shoulders and low back, use the power of your torso to create leverage and use less energy with each stroke, use force generated from your lower body to make your paddling strokes more efficient, have the endurance to handle long days in the boat, drive through the toughest waves or whitewater, 
protect your body against common paddling injuries, and while you're at it, you might even lose a few pounds, and who wouldn't mind that? So visit PaddlingExercises.com to get the book and companion DVD. That was a fun glimpse into the experiences of an Antarctic guide. Congratulations to Louise on a long career at the bottom of the world. She had a particularly unique view as she seems to have gotten in on the ground floor of Antarctic kayak guiding. She built her skills over the years as the industry grew to where it is today, thanks to organizations like the Polar Tourism Guide Association. Now, you may have noticed that there's one question that was missing from the end of Louise's interview. We had a small problem, so I had to go back to Louise and re-record her recommendation for a future guest. So it's going to sound a little different, but here it is. So Louise, I have one final question for you, and that is, who else would you like to hear as a future guest on Paddling the Blue? Oh, Karen Weeks comes to mind. Dr. Karen Weeks, she's a sports physiologist in Ireland, and she has done some remarkable things uh, in the solo expeditioning world. Her most recent one was uh, rowing across the Atlantic from the Canary Islands to Barbados, and it took 80 days. She was alone out there in the ocean for 80 days. Um, she has also circumnavigated Ireland in a sea kayak. She climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and Mount Kenya in Africa. Um, let's see, what other previous endurance challenges? Oh, including bicycling solo across Canada. Uh, she started a, a, a foundation called She Can Do last year, and it's all about empowering young women and girls to go beyond their boundaries and take risks. Uh, she's a, an incredibly inspiring person, so I would love to uh, hear an interview about her. Fantastic. Well, I, I did see some of the web coverage of her Atlantic Row, and, and I was I was captivated by the story as well, but I was not aware of all the other amazing accomplishments. So um, I will definitely reach out to Karen, and we'll work on getting her on the show. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Our next episode will take us to a much warmer climate, where we'll talk with Ginny Callahan from Baja, Mexico. We'll trade the dry suit for a swimsuit for that one, where we talk reefs, free diving from your boat, crossing the Sea of Cortez, and even crossing the South Pacific. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Paddling the Blue. Thank you for listening to Paddling the Blue. You can subscribe to Paddling the Blue on Apple Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please take the time to leave us a five-star review on Apple Music. We truly appreciate the support. And you can find the show notes for this episode and other episodes, along with replays of past episodes, contact information, and more at paddlingtheblue.com. Until next time, I hope you get out and paddle the blue.